Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal agriculture. Tonight, we continue our discussions on the new 2021 Gary NRC, currently known as NASM. This is a follow-up to our Real Science Lecture series of five webinars that officially unveiled the new Dairy NRC back in September. We'll be breaking down the feed intake, carbohydrates, and feed analysis and composition chapters during this episode. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we welcome Dr. Mary Beth Hall, who presented the feed intake and carbohydrate sections during the Real Science Lecture series. Dr. Hall, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for coming. And I understand that you are, uh, you're going to be our designated driver tonight. So uh, Clay, that means Clay can drink a little more of his uh, cider. Would you mind giving us a little bit of background about the process that was employed to create the sections of the new uh, Dairy NRC that you presented during the uh, Real Science Lecture Series? It's been uh, 20 years since the last one. I'm sure that you and your team have put in a ton of time and effort these past few years. Well, I tell you what, though, we'll toss this back between Paul and me for answering that. Uh, when the committee first came together, there were a list of topics. I mean, some that we're used to seeing in the NRC, some not, uh, that were on the list of chapters uh, of topics that they wanted addressed. And those were parceled out amongst the committee members and uh, with a lead and with uh, associate people on each chapter, and we proceeded from there. Um, some chapters looking a lot more like a literature review, and some chapters diving deep into the bowels uh, of creating models and so forth that um, got brought together into the final models that will come out with this publication. You know, I'd maybe just add too, I think it's it's important to recognize that this, if you look at the cover, it'll be noted that it's a revised edition. And so really, you know, where the committee started off was looking at the, the previous reports that had been written, not just the 2001, but Mary Beth, I remember us even talking about the 1989 version, and I remember going back and, and looking at that as well. So it's it's really uh, building upon what what past committees had done and how past committees had had brought us forward in in this understanding. Absolutely, I mean the feedback and experiences that people have had since the last NRC, which informed maybe some of the direction that we could go um, and with some new research that allowed us to go. It was pretty cool. It's interesting how some fields, uh, you know, advanced dramatically since 2001. Others have been somewhat stagnant and some of that is dependent upon, uh, you know, funding. Uh, maybe a good example is, is water. There wasn't a lot of recent research in looking at uh, water consumption uh, by dairy cattle and and factors affecting it. Uh, however, if you look on the protein side, you know how how the world is, has changed in our understanding of amino acid metabolism. Just a tremendous amount of, of new research there, and so uh, it's also dependent upon chapter as as to the extent of revision, I guess that that went underway. You know, before we get started here, I'd like to officially welcome Dr. Paul Kononoff back to the Real Science Exchange just to give you a, a proper introduction. Paul, this has got to be your fourth time here at the Exchange, giving you the distinction of being one of the most uh, uh, frequent visitors. So thank you once again for coming here to the Exchange. Yes. Thank you, Scott. I'm delighted to be here again. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, can you just kind of give us an overview uh, being on the committee? What was some of the most interesting uh, things, uh, you know, during your time on the committee? I mean, it was just a tremendous opportunity uh, to, to be involved and uh, to sit around in, in a room. So what, what happened is they brought us in. I can't even remember how many meetings we had, but we had several in-person meetings that were several days long. And just a I mean, honestly, just the highlight of my career to, to sit, uh, lock ourselves into the room with uh, the committee that's you know listed at the front of the publication and discuss dairy nutrition and to talk about where it should be going and, and what we know. So by far and away, the biggest highlight was just being involved in that, that team of scientists in the committee that, that was brought together. 
Hmm. I'm sure I'll look at, look back on that uh, many times throughout the rest of my career here. Yeah, thank you. Mary Beth, uh, you presented one of five webinars for the Real Science uh, Lecture Series, and your session was the, the, the most popular, was the most widely uh, viewed. So uh, congratulations for that. Um, can you kind of um, summarize for us what some of the biggest changes uh, were for the feed intake and carbohydrate sections for the, uh, as, as compared to the uh, 2001 edition? Well, putting the, let's go to the feed intake first. Um, I mean, and so much of what we do with nutrition, like just about everything, um, relies on getting a handle on the animal's intake. And the improvements that have been made since the last NRC, um, I mean, besides looking at more different animal factors, including parity, we're bringing factors associated with the diet to the table, including forage digestibility and ADF to NDF ratio that essentially lets you bring in the concept of how much grass is in the diet versus how much legume and perhaps how much um, non-forage uh, fiber sources are there. And you know, just looking at the graphs of the data now, a lot less bias, a lot more accuracy. Um, but I tell you what, ha having been an extension and worked with herds of cows who I decided had never had chosen to never read the NRC to know what they were supposed to do. Um, we've got some really cool improvements to investigate in the field, but people are going to have to pay attention to the point that there are other factors, including management, environment, and, and so forth, that will influence what their cows do. And so, no, I, I think we've got a heck of a good starting place for that. Um, and we'll get to see where it goes. So Mary Beth, what specifically changed between the, um, this, this version of the NRC and the 01 NRC in, in regards to the, the dry matter intake equations? Well, there are two different dry matter intake equations, uh, that the new NRC has. And one of them is looking at the animal factors that you use as your opening volley. If, as you're trying to predict what might, what the animal response will be on a diet, um, which would new diet, and that would include parity, milk energy, body weight, uh, body condition score, which hadn't been there before. Um, and those cover the animal factors. Then when you go to the equation that has the plant factors and, or the dietary factors involved, then you get into the forage NDF, um, basically is something that likely will limit intake depend on based on fill, the ADF to NDF ratio for NDF, forage NDF, digestibility, um, milk yield and, and such. I mean, so I guess the biggest changes from the previous NRC would be the number of different factors that are brought together, including a much closer look, I think, at the diet um, for what will influence intake. So, so are there certain stages of lactation where physical fill would be more limiting? Mm -hmm. I mean, that I'm presume, yeah, there's no quite way to tell because I mean, stage of lactation or lactation number, um, depends what's going on at the time. You got to assume, um, if we look at parity, you got, what are the animals requirements that are going to end up driving intake? I mean, for a first lactation animal, certainly she's going to be focused on getting nutrients for growth as well as milk production and eventually reproduction um, and putting back reserves. Um, by day of lactation, you have some of the same things that come into play, but milk yield or milk energy is going to weigh heavily on what that means. And so it's important to consider all of them together. The body condition score uh, piece that's in the animal, the animal related equation, that's kind of curious because it, it showed up, it, it was brought into the equation, but what does it mean? I mean, is it when an animal is on the low body condition score size and she needs 
to gain body weight and it isn't due to um, health issues or whatnot? Is it animals on the other end of the scale with a lot higher body condition score that might not see the need or feel the need to consume as much? I look forward to seeing how that plays out. And then maybe just uh, if I could just add a little bit on these these equations, I thought it was really interesting, you know, okay, so now you have two equations. So when do you use those equations? And I mean, the text will will uh, describe that. And I know Mike Allen at the Discover conference mentioned mentioned exactly that and he had some discussion, but maybe we could just highlight that. So the the one animal factor, what so Often there's uh, three dry matter intakes on ration formulation, one that you know the cows are doing, maybe one that you want to calculate, and then uh, obviously the, the second one calculated with, with diet factors. But, but he suggested really this, this animal uh, model be used as a base to predict dry matter intake, and then uh, the second one be used you know, when you're formulating diets and perhaps manipulating different ingredients that could be affecting affecting the filling effects of of the diet and so that's really where those two different equations can be used by nutritionists yeah i mean the the animal base is the one you have you can have with some certainty uh, the the forage base it's so malleable depending what you do with the diet it it should give you directionality at the very least mm -hmm. So, Paul, I know we've gotten into this in some of the other uh, uh, podcasts that we've done, but how does breed play into this? Yeah. So we, yeah, we, you know, and that's, it's interesting. Um, I know when we were at the Discover conference, there was a, a frequent question like, <laughs> okay, how does this equation affect jerseys? And I know that happened, you know, when we, when our committee got together in that closed room, often we'd say, well, what about jerseys? Uh, the equations that are developed here uh, are primarily based on Holsteins and there's nothing specific to jerseys. Um, so the question is, what about jerseys? How do these equations work with jerseys? Um, I know that they uh, did look at these equations at um, using smaller animals in the data set and that the the uh, equations fit pretty well related to those smaller animals, suggesting, you know, you could be able to transpose this over jerseys. There is um, one equation, and I know it was cited in there, Jim Holter from the University of New Hampshire. He's published uh, an intake equation specific to jerseys, uh, but that, that obviously is not used in either of these two equations here. You know, um, I think, you know, if you look at the animal factors, uh, you know, milk energy drives a lot of intake. But if you look at those factors, when, when it's all, um, I'd say, broken down onto jerseys, uh, um, my expectation is it probably do, will do fairly well with, with jerseys. But I would say that's, you know, if we talked about things that need to be investigated into the future, that's probably one element is, is maybe dialing down and thinking, well, how may jerseys be different and uh, i think there's probably interest in that um, but i expect the equations you know probably will do fairly well when we're working with jerseys one one of the things that i'll be curious to see uh, as we deal with animals with different feed efficiency um, i mean if you can get the same amount of milk at a lower dry matter intake you've improved efficiency and we know there's a range of efficiencies. So with the data that's out there, well, one can, I was gonna say presume, but that's bad. One can guess that, that it should go through the middle of the animals that we have out there now. Um, but as you have animals with different efficiencies and it's not just due to them stripping body condition score, It'll be curious to see how it just pans out as well. Well, I was just going to maybe flip flip the the Jersey thing back to to Clay. I mean, without maybe naming specific commercial products, but like, are you hearing different recommendations, uh, feeding recommendations for Jerseys compared to Holsteins with uh, different commercial products that are currently available? 
we get that question a lot. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a good mm-hmm. question. Um, we're not quite sure how to answer that, to be honest, yeah. because mm-hmm. almost all of our data is in Holsteins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really good question. Mm-hmm. That, that's actually what the committee dealt with. It, and I think um, in his presentation, didn't Mike say something to the effect that the data was from Holsteins? The vast yeah. majority of the data is from Holsteins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to develop equations, you need data. So, right. mm-hmm. Yeah. So during our webinar series, we had over 1,700 people register to listen to those webinars, uh, many of which from countries where the, the, the cattle are, are, are grazed. So how did you take that into account when you were developing uh, your recommendations? I would love for Paul to answer that. Except <laughs> 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 he didn't write the pasture uh, <laughs> chapter. I think one of the comments was that this wasn't, necessarily intended to be applicable to pasture. I mean, when you consider what's going on in pasture, it's it's not just what the animal can eat, it's the availability of feed, it's yeah. the density uh, of the canopy and the rest of it. Um, I, I think they might've even said that this wasn't necessarily developed with pasture in mind. Yeah, that was another question that came up in a number of the discussion sessions it had to do with pasture applicability to pasture situations, just like the, the Jersey questions came out a lot. Um, but Mary Beth, I think you could probably weigh in on the, the uh, especially from the carbohydrate side and the pasture side. You know, one of the new things in this uh, report is that, you know, we do focus on, uh, we have a measure of starch and then, well, water-soluble carbohydrates is not directly used in any of the equations the the ROM is. But when you think about pastures and the water-soluble carbohydrates, and maybe it's not applicable to this report, but but future reports, I mean, how important is that component on, on a pasture situation? And something like, okay, ROM, residual organic matter, and it's used in the energy equations. Um, what it is, is basically the old NFC, non-fiber carbohydrates by difference, minus starch. So what it encompasses are going to be the water-soluble carbohydrates, which are sugars, fructans, oligosaccharides, and so forth. It'll have the pectins in it. Any, any of the carbohydrates that aren't in NDF and are not starch will be in the residual organic matter, along with other components we don't measure, and along with error. Um, what I was told was that the energy equation seemed to work rather well, even using that. Um, one of my questions would be, continues to be, I, I mean, our, our diets that we feed to cattle are still pretty starch centric. If you're looking at the major NFC that goes in there. So it is part of this, this residual organic matter that has the other carbohydrates like Paul that, that are going to be important in, in pastures. Um, does it just have a lesser impact because most of the diets we've looked at don't have quite as much in there. Again, you need data to explore this. And uh, so we need to see from here. Your, your thoughts on that, Paul? No, no, I, I agree. I mean, and, and certainly uh, when it came to water soluble carbohydrate, I mean, we just, there was really was, was data where we're really limiting to really use that information. Uh, but you're right, especially in the U S obviously we're highly uh, dependent upon starch in our diets. And, uh, a lot of studies since 2001 have been reporting starch. So, so back to the, the pasture question, how much would, how much would activity impact dry matter intake? in these grazing situations. Okay, Clay, define activity. Well, I'm thinking walking distance in this case. Okay, so that's driving some of the the nutrient requirements for energy, right? Yep. Okay, so, I mean, isn't, isn't part of the discussion about pasture how much work you're asking the animal to do, how much milk she's making, 
what she needs to meet those needs, and then what's actually available on the pasture that she's offered. I, I mean, let alone the mud and let alone weather and, and let alone anything else. It, it's how many pieces come together and they can all be moving in different directions. If I was going to guess, and strictly a guess, I'd say activity might affect it, but the ability for the cow to meet her needs on pasture is going to depend, even with added activity, is going to depend on a lot of other things. Does that feel right, Paul? And yeah, Clay, yeah, what do you think? Yeah. It's one of the things, I mean, there's just, again, you know, not a lot of data out there um, controlling physical activity and then the effect on feed intake or even energy metabolism for that for, for that matter. But certainly, um, certainly it is, can be hugely impactful. Just kind of one follow-up kind of question, at least for me on that, is that um, obviously uh, the new NASM is, is targeted toward confinement animals, high production animals. Um, is there another body that, that is taking a look at grazing animals in other parts of the world that we could refer uh, our listeners to? Paul, would you want to bet New Zealand has done substantial amounts of work on yeah. intake on pasture? Yeah, there's certainly uh, investigators in uh, uh, not only New Zealand, but Ireland that are working uh, aggressively in those two areas. And even different parts of the United States, for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, and especially, I think, as as you look at some of the things circulated, what I would guess, to organic dairies and, and to that portion of the market. Um, but yeah, the countries that have been most reliant on pasture, it, it would make sense to look to see what they've evolved and understand that our conditions, I mean, if you're, if you're going to graze Bermuda grass, it might be a little different than uh, Italian rye or, or perennial rye grass. Great idea. Back to the, the water soluble carbohydrate discussion earlier. So um, this is a question that comes up a lot. So, so a lot of the forage reports that are coming back from the labs, it'll report ethanol soluble carbohydrates and water soluble carbohydrates. What's the difference between the two? Before Mary Beth answered that question, you know, I, I, I remember our early days, you know, the, can, the committee actually discussing exactly this and trying to figure out really, you know, what measure should we be looking at? What measure should we report in our feed tables? And uh, obviously the expert uh, we have here in the room today, but she helped us uh, sort through some of these uh, analytical differences. Mary Beth. How did okay. you direct the committee? Okay, I'll take blame. Actually, it, it's work. I'll I'll give you an answer in, in a minute, Clay. But but it was work over a number of years, touching base with other scientists to say, how does this look to you, and does this look like the right direction? But because anything we measure, it's got to meet a few criteria. It darn well better be nutritionally relevant if we're going to use it in, in diet formulation. Um, it's got to be something we can actually measure on through commercial labs if we're going to use it in diet formulation. And for myself, I feel kind of cautious about telling to people to go for more extreme analyses before we've got good justification for them. Okay. And, and extreme, let, let's say a lot more detailed, a lot more expensive. Okay. Um, where we started out was with ethanol soluble carbohydrates and that's those that could be extracted in 80 percent ethanol it seemed like a good idea at the time we we thought we could split out sugars sugars versus non-sugars and get a nutritional entity that would behave itself um problem was i hadn't looked at grasses um grasses have fructans and 80 percent ethanol extracts some of them and doesn't extract some of them. And there was no nutritional justification for leaving the larger ones behind and not counting them as a digestible carbohydrate. Um, also, much to my chagrin, discovered that lactose isn't so particularly soluble in 80% ethanol. And that most definitely is sugar. And so we went through analyses looking at comparing ethanol versus water-soluble carbohydrates went with water-soluble carbohydrates as encompassing more and um, 
went with uh, the phenol sulfuric acid assay for those carbohydrates rather than reducing sugar because it was more comparable to what uh, high performance ion chromatography gave us. Okay. Mm -hmm. With one caveat, when you're analyzing most of your forages and other feeds, using sucrose as a standard is fine. When you're analyzing things with lactose, you better use lactose as the standard because the standard that you use in that assay method matters. Try, try to use something that's as close to what you think is in there as you can. But at any rate, that's, that's the all behind water-soluble carbohydrates is more encompassing. And by putting the assay out there, there, there's hope by the time we get around to another NRC or NASM, uh, if people have an assay to work with, we might have more data to be able to handle what needs to be looked at or can be evolved. Maybe circling back a little bit on the, uh, the feed intake, what are some practical implications that the changes that you guys have highlighted, what implications will that have on balancing dairy rations going forward? So I, I think that the, uh, the feed factors equations, I mean, when you look at uh, using some of these different forages, uh, corn silage versus uh, grasses versus alfalfa. I mean, when you're making those decisions, I think that equation will be pretty nifty and useful, especially given given all of the factors that that it influences. I think the the one area you know, and I think about implications for future research is um, I think recommendations on the report are not to use that equations when you're manipulating byproducts because the the physical nature of those feeds is just so much different. So I think uh, when looking at forages, that second equation will be extremely useful. And uh, in the future, hopefully we can uh, do more research on, on the byproduct side of things and, and better understand the fiber and byproducts. So that would be so, maybe my take on it. So, so actually, Paul, I mean, something you just said about, yeah, the byproducts, which are anything but uniform, it, it sort of looks like figuring out how to best to handle those and maybe residual organic matter are, are two gaps that we've got that we need to fill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I'd agree. One thing I did want to know was if, if you guys, um, did you get involved in looking at dry matter intake for dairy cows or the dry cows, calves or heifers, or was that left to those, those, uh, chapter authors? So the heifer, uh, there is a heifer equation in the dry matter intake equation. And then for uh, dry cows, there's in, in the dry cow, tri, dry cow and transition chapter. And then of course, calves as well, there's an intake in the calves chapter. So, so that is separate from the dry matter intake uh, chapter. Yeah, I'm glad, glad you asked that question. So the dry matter intake chapter is really just applicable to lactating cows. And and growing heifers, I believe there's a, an equation for that for heifers. Which feed factors specifically are in in that, that dry matter intake equation that's related to, to the diet factors? For what the specific feed factors that you have there, um, and this goes into, this goes into the, the second equation, not the main animal factors that you want to look at, it's the amount of forage NDF, and that goes to the point of how much fill are, are you bringing in with the diet. Um, and you got to understand there are probably some assumptions there about how coarsely or finely chopped that material is. If it's really finely chopped, I, I don't know how that, that'll fit. ADF to, divided by NDF, which can, as mentioned earlier, gets into the, the ratios of the two between grasses and legumes and, and how they'd affect intake. Um, forage NDF digestibility, which the more digestible the forage is, the less filling it will be. The less digestible it is, the more filling it'll be and have greater impact on intake. Uh, let's see. And that, as far as I can see, is it for the specific forage factors. So which time points did you use for NDF digestibility? I'm pretty sure it's the 48 hour. Um, 
but that's something I'd have to go back and check. Do you have a different recollection, Paul? Well, the, the 48 hours what's listed in the uh, uh, feed composition tables, but I know the paper that was used to develop this, uh, um, Alan, Souza, and Vandahar, they actually evaluated, um, I think, multiple uh, digestibilities in their studies. Clay, you want to transition to the carbohydrate section now? Yeah. So what were some of the biggest changes in the carbohydrate chapter as compared to the 2001 uh, version? Okay. And mind you, the carbohydrate chapter, uh, you don't see any equations there that go to energy or microbial protein production or anything along those lines, which is similar to what was done previously. The last NRC to, had, the same, had the same approach. I mean, the biggest thing, I think, is talking about more different types of carbohydrates in a bit more detail, getting a bit better understanding or discussion on starch, of which there's a fair amount of detail, and also revisiting the, the whole effective fiber question. Because we, you know, it. I, I tell people, you know, effective fiber often in the past well yeah i'll say this it's been sort of like the Mies commission you you know it when you see it because the physically effective fiber work as wonderful as it has been in, in giving us insights as to how particle size how ndf affects rumen function it, it felt to me like it had a largely research focus and you know so the last nrc they had I think table 4-3 that had forage NDF, total NDF in the diet, maybe ADF and NFC to give you an idea of what direction they should go as you're feeding more or less of one or another. Um, ended up revising that for this publication, but bringing starch into the equation as opposed to NFC. And then also an entirely different approach that more specifically looked at different dietary factors, which is the physically effective fiber approach, which I will gladly hand off to Paul. Yeah, so as as Mary Beth mentioned, the, the previous NRC had this table, or 4-3, and, and we spent a lot of time talking about that. And I think time is, has shown that that table has been extremely useful and very applicable to many diet situations. Um, and then one of the things that has has happened since that last NRC is that there has, as Mary Beth mentioned, been a lot of work on forage particle size as specific to the Penn State particle separator. Uh, so quick plug out to Penn State, even though they lost to Iowa. But that <laughs> that that device has been, you know, extremely useful. If you look at the industry and how they've used it, I mean, I think safe to say most dairy nutritionists drive around with it in the back of their pickup truck or it's sitting in their garage or in and, the back of their car wait and and they use it go ahead yes and they use it in fact if i think if you google dairy nutritionists you'll probably see a nutritionist shaking the 10 state <laughs> particle separator not sitting down doing ration formulation uh but you know that that device is used a lot everywhere around the world. And so I think the committee, well, taking a step back, several co-authors and myself, uh, Robin White, Jeff Perkins, Mary Beth, we said, you know, how can uh, this device be used to formulate recommendations for effective fiber? But, but, but wait a second, wait a second. When we first started discussing this, one of the deals was we weren't sure we were even gonna find anything that it was mm -hmm. relevant or not. But mm -hmm. but you look because this was one tool for looking at particle size that people actually used in the field. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that's where the recommendations were needed. Go for it. And so separate from I guess uh, the committee responsibilities, you know, really what we did is we we said, okay, can we can we find the scientific uh, papers that have looked at uh, forage particle size as well as other uh, nutrient analyses that are commonly used. And then what 
have these what have these studies looked at in terms of animal measures and uh you know our our group that that worked on these papers really hung our hat on two different components uh but the whole idea is that effective fiber is related to rumen ph and so we saw that as as an important element to uh to investigate um and i think as many of your viewers know the whole notion of effective fiber is related to not only rumen ph but the impact of rumination and what that has on saliva production and rumen buffering uh, uh, but in general just rumen conditions we know that as as cows ruminate uh saliva production happens there's rumen motility good things happens for the cat happens to the cow long story short you know this kind of working group uh designed a number of equations to evaluate this whole notion of effective fiber and rumen conditions and uh, attempted to use these equations to uh, predict particle sizes that are necessary for optimal rumen conditions. And so the committee did adapt uh, some of the uh, equations and use the equations for uh, a few tables that are listed in the publication that show some examples of really why particle size matters and why particle size influences effective fiber. So getting back to the old NRC 2001, although chemical composition was very useful, what we were able to do is stake out that, yes, not only chemical composition, but the physical components of the diets also affect effective fiber and rumen conditions. And so I think that was an important step. Is it applicable in all situations? uh probably not but just being able to tie these measures to this device that dairy nutritionists use kind of around the world i think is is an important thing to identify and to be sure is included in the discussion of effective fiber the term that that you use in the in the publication is physically adjusted ndf is that correct yeah so which which screens are important on the Penn State yeah. particle separator, which which screens really drive drive that? I think most of your uh, listeners will know that, uh, and I'll keep it in metric. That's the scientific unit of measure. Uh, but the the first first screen is nineteen millimeters. The next screen is uh, eight millimeters, and then there's two other screens that are commonly used: one measuring one point one eight millimeters or four millimeters. Um, so which one matters? And I think it, it probably depends yes. on what you're thinking. First of all, yeah, as Mary Beth said, they're, they're probably all uh, matter because what you're really interested in is the particle size distribution. But, um, you know, if we had to think, well, we, we also in, in uh, when we were working on those papers asked that question, we know, you know, loosely that sorting activity is highly related to particles on that top screen. Those are large particles that the cows are able to sort. What probably is able to change the most on most management situations or harvest harvesting conditions is actually that that second screen. Number one, that that is a high proportion of the feed that's found there. And that's what's manipulated most often. And so um, in, in this uh, approach of physically effective fiber, what the users are actually doing is um, looking for an optimal range that's found on that second screen. And then uh, the third screen, 1.18 uh, millimeters or four millimeters, that's obviously heavily driven by by the grain component of the diet. One of the things that was pretty neat here, I, I think, and, and, and is, is also um, a heads up to the folks who would use the app that goes along with this, which is called, for the physically effective NDF, there is an app free uh, that's called Munch for Dairy Cows. I'd like folks to remember with this is that we say there's a target ruminal pH for for this app that that kind of proxies in what is a healthy rumen, but it's a proxy. It's not. There are a lot of things that affect ruminal pH, but but so we're aiming for it as a proxy. The other part is that you do need to get 
the dry matter of what's on the different screens. Because as we went through looking at this every which way till from Tuesday, uh, possibly Wednesday, sometimes Saturday. I mean, what, what we were ended up finding is that there was too much variability in what we were seeing in the water content. And that would just foul the ability to look at what was on the different screens and relate them to something. Uh, and so to do that, it's just knowing what's on the different screens, taking a portion and whether with an appropriate microwave and, and scale or a coster tester or something along those lines, get a dry matter on it. And then you'll have the numbers you can use. So the dry matter off, off the top two screens or? That or would be off of whatever. If you look at the app, it's asking for the proportion of the TMR dry matter that's on the top two screens. Yes, Paul? Yes. Okay. Okay. Just don't use the microwave that's in the kitchen if you can help it. We take no response. We take no responsibility for others' actions in uh, <laughs> in selection of microwave to use. <laughs> Switching gears just a bit. Go ahead, Clay. I was going to ask about about uh, starch degradability and uh, and and how the committee took that into account and and grain processing and so forth. With with the PANDF system or in general? In general. Okay. We know it matters. Okay, I'm allowed to leave a lot of silence for like uh, several <laughs> minutes after that. Um, I mean, part part of the challenge you've got with okay, part of the challenge you've got with anything is being able to measure it and know what it relates to and having consistent measurements. Yes. Yep. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. I mean. I think, relatively speaking, we've got fiber digestibility in pretty good hands for, for numbers being interpretable. I mean, there's been discussion about how we should approach starch digestibility. And, and again, we know it matters. Um, but I do not recall whether it was from lack of data or variability in methods used that that some of this didn't get into some of the other equations and paul do you have recollection for yeah i i would probably say both um there is an adjustment for you know the the form of corn that's fed and and that is um but it's it's a pretty simple uh, estimate that's changed by the like the form dry roll versus high moisture corn and, okay. that, and that kind of thing but but um we are not using in vitro uh, starch digestibility in in any of the models okay. so actually paul going back the uh i mean starch degradability did show up for predicting microbial protein yield right or i mean even yeah. in round terms mm -hmm. okay you know, uh, again, um, it's trying to get folks to work on methods evaluation even. I mean, I mentioned earlier that something needs to be nutritionally relevant and, and, and measurable and so forth. And we face the same thing. We face the same thing here. Um, my impression is that, you know, we have various indices that are really pretty helpful from, from the in vitro measures, but I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure I've seen and okay. The next question you should ask me is Maribeth, have you actually looked? Um, it, it is looking at the question of how consistent are let's say starch digestibility measures done in different laboratories and so forth and so on, um, different sources of inoculum and the rest. And, and some of this just, if it hasn't been vetted already, it needs to be, and then recommendations made for how people should try to measure. That's quite honestly, telling people how to measure something is the best way to find out what's wrong with the assay. 
<laughs> I, I, I tell you from experience. <laughs> so do you do you address starch, uh, starch assays and the feed analysis chapter? We give, we give a recommendation for a starch analysis, not for a starch degradability analysis. Okay. You know, before we leave the carbohydrates, uh, Clay, I was curious, you know, as you guys, part of the process is obviously you do a literature search and you, you, you dig into the data, you see what it's, uh, what's new. Um, what were some of the biggest gaps that, that you found that you wish you had? And then, you know, looking forward as you uh, leave cookies for your predecessors, that's going to, going to address this down the road. What are some of the things that, uh, that you're going to uh, tell them that they need to address the next time? Paul, would you touch on yeah, that as, as, an, wait, as an innocent bystander, okay? <laughs> yeah, Mary Beth is asking me to go first. Talk about a loaded question. Um, you know, of course it's, and I don't know if we're going to officially talk about it today. It's something that's near and dear to my heart, but it doesn't get a lot of airplay compared to the coefficients of digestion or the amino acid concentrations. It's just simple chemical analysis. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time on our, uh, um, on our chapter that describes chemical composition of feeds. But um, I would say that's one thing, you know, if we look at papers that are being published in the Journal of Dairy Science and you go to do a meta-analysis or to, to gleam things out of those papers, I would say that's, that's one thing we're getting better but um, it's one thing that we're just not seeing is a complete description of, of, of all of the feeds, but even the forages uh, themselves. I know like me personally, um, I remember when I was at Penn State doing my PhD, Dr. Varga, I remember her specifically saying, well, if you wanna help the next committee, think about the inputs that are used in this model and use these inputs and report these inputs in your papers that are published in the Journal of Dairy Science. But, you know, surprisingly, there is some limitations on, on many of the, the, the forages and the chemical description of the forages. So I think that's the big one is actually describing the feeds using the methods. I think, I hope, uh, and I expect that this publication will provide additional guidelines around the methods that are used to describe these feeds. Uh, but but just a complete description of the feeds, not only uh, chemical composition, but as we already mentioned, particle size of the diets as well. So I guess I would say that would be a, a big thing in the future that I would like to see us doing more of is describing the feeds. So Mary Beth, are you willing to take a run at that question? Seeing as you were so kind to take first stab, I'd better. Um, I thoroughly agree with Paul. I mean, if you don't have the information that describes the picture, you have so many large gaps, that the, these blank spots, that it makes it harder for you to take a variety of studies and piece them together and see what story they have to tell. Um, you know, you mentioned starch digestibility with with something that's over 20% of the diet frequently, it'd be really, really, really good to have a better handle on how that behaves within the animal. Um, one of the reasons that, um, or one of the sets of commentary within the carbohydrate chapter is not wanting to deal with KD and KP, rate of, di rate of digestibility and rate of passage, because we don't have ways to get especially the rate of passage inputs. Um, and if you think about rate of passage, that is a harvest mechanism for the rumen. It's what gets to the small intestine and it decides what's going to be held in the rumen to be converted by the microbes to the extent they can. And so much hinges on that. Because I did something bad in a previous life, I've been looking at liquid passage kinetics. At the last uh, ADSA meeting, I presented information that said, all right, it's actually a two-pool, three-kinetic rate system. Because you've got things that are in the liquid fraction in with the liquid, in with the solids, and you have material passing out with the liquid to the solid and passing from the solid to the liquid. And, and some of this is based on work that one of Jeff Furkin's students did. Um, 
we could use more information on kinetics and we could use more information descriptive of diets and and whatever pieces you can bring together in a study to try and make them more complete. Just understand that when some large blind spots are left, it leaves us going blind. We, we, we can't move forward with it. Yeah. And so I, as, as Mary Beth was talking, I was listening, but just, you know, flipping through some of my notes, you know, as, as dairy nutritionists, many of us are interested in the lactating cow. And I think it's, it's fair to say that there has not been a lot of research on growing heifers. And I think the committee, that was one of their challenges is, is finding data to outline new and updated nutrient requirements of, of, uh, growing heifers, not my area, but um, I, I do know that that's probably an area that, that we need more work on in the future. Okay, one of the things you will note is that uh, Paul and I may very gladly suggest things for other people to do. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and Especially and, passage. Yeah, especially passage, yeah. Um, nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Paul, you were talking a little bit about um, some of the gaps specific to feed composition. Let's talk a little bit about what um, uh, people that will be buying the new NASM, they're going to get it mid-December. What kind of revelations specific to feed analysis and composition will they find? So that was, uh, I think, the committee, you know, we, we had a lot of fun working on feed composition, believe it or not. And we saw there huge opportunities to develop better and, and to publish better information on feed composition. Um, one of our big partners uh, was the USDA NANP program, which is a program designed around feed composition. And we had several postdocs helping us uh, in, in working in that area. But I'm, we're, I think we're all particularly proud of this new feed library. Is there anything, you know, um, that will make a lot of eyebrows raise? Perhaps not. But one of the things I think most importantly, what we did is we had a number of key um, uh, feed labs here in the United States that graciously supplied us data. And then we were able to employ a, uh, over that data, actually a procedure that had been published by uh, Peter Yoder and Bill Weiss from Ohio State and used that to basically clean up the data set that, that we were supplied from these commercial labs. So a good example was uh, corn gluten feed. Uh, what we were able to do is actually um, User or listeners are probably not surprised to hear that people mislabel corn gluten feed with corn gluten meal all the time. In fact, they may not even label it; they'll just call it corn gluten. And so that's that's a feed that you know is is a good example of. We don't really know uh, the chemical composition of it, especially if you go to these feed libraries, because there's just uh, so many feeds that are misclassified. And uh, so we were able to use this approach to actually clean up the data set. So we have a large data set and we were able to clean it up and get good estimates of the mean, but perhaps even more importantly, get good understandings of the type of variation you have within analyte and within feed. And so in addition to reporting the mean uh, standard deviation in N, we're also gonna be reporting the 10th and the 90th percentile of each analyte that's listed there. And I think that'll be extremely useful for people in the field to understand not only the, the mean chemical composition, but what kind of variation can be, um, is involved within each feed stuff. And so developing the feed library, again, maybe wasn't the most exciting thing. We think it's particularly important. Working with even just standardizing the, the feed names as well, that we, we thought that was important. So I'm actually kind of excited to see, you know, how people are gonna be able to use the feed library and, and what improvements that has on predicting animal performance. So are there, are there some new nutrients or analyses that are in in the feed composition tables now that weren't yeah. in the O one. Uh, 
That's a good question. Um, I think uh, probably the, the, the best answer for that is not really. Mary Beth, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but basically typical chemical analysis that you would get from the feed testing lab. If you look at the, the protein fractions and digestibility fractions, there's the A, B, and C, as well as the rate of, uh, of uh, digestion in the rumen rumen undegradable protein or RUP, and then the digestibility of the RUP. I think the what's what's been improved there, just like particle size, there's been more studies that have actually reported, tested and reported the intestinal digestibility of the RUP. And so um, I think we've made advancements, not necessarily in the analyte that's reported, but some of the understanding and the estimates around the digestibility of, of bypass protein. Um, the, uh, um, I guess, yeah, that's probably the main one. I, I think the previous well, one did report. Oh, go ahead, Mary Beth. I was going to ask you, do you remember what analytes went into the tables of composition that weren't used elsewhere in the document? I mean, I'm thinking soluble protein was there, and I don't think that's elsewhere. Did water soluble carbohydrates make it in or no? Yeah. So yeah. So that's that's the thing is uh, early on, you know, unlike probably previous committees, we started working on the feed composition library early on. So we weren't absolutely sure what analyte would actually be used in the final model, but we had a pretty good idea, and so. Mary Beth mentioned there was there was two analytes that we weren't exactly sure if they would be used. Uh, those would be water-soluble carbohydrates and soluble protein. Uh, to my understanding, those two analytes are are reported, but they're not used in any model. They can be used to evaluate feeds, uh, perhaps gain understanding of the feeds, but but those nutrients aren't used in in any of the reports oh the other thing is uh, you know very generously um, cornell provided uh, uh, fatty acid data for us and we also had a commercial lab that provided us some individual fatty acid data so so those are new analytes uh to to this publication they weren't in the previous one so you so you talked about residual organic matter earlier is is that included in the feed composition tables mary beth you want to answer that i don't think so it, so it's not in there but it's calculated okay, okay. in the model yeah paul got a real quick question from mary beth um the so so we know that um our forages have been genetically enhanced over over the years has there been any, any drift in nutrient composition uh, from that. And so did you see any big differences between 2001 and 2021 in terms of what the nutrient values looked like for specific feedstuffs? What were some of the biggest differences you saw? One of the things that really aggravated Peter Van Soest was when he looked at a table of nutrient composition and it had mature alfalfa, immature alfalfa, yada, da, and it didn't show any particular difference in composition. And, um, and and what it went to was something that Paul just talked about, where there were feeds that were mislabeled, um, misrepresented for what they were. And um, it, it's sort of like one of the past NRCs when there was a really, really high fiber content on, might've been one of the corn glutens, but it's because they didn't add amylase and get the starch out of that particular feedstuff. So, you know, you ask about how this is going to compare with past ones. At the very least, you might have greater certainty that what you're looking at are numbers for what you intended to look at. What, what else have you seen, Paul? Yeah, actually, nothing really comes to mind as far as glaring differences. I know there's probably some good examples of just wrong 
wrong numbers wrong in past numbers. publications, but nothing nothing particular is coming to mind. I think Mary Beth is right. I think you know I think we're just getting a more accurate reflection of the chemical composition. And, so then, uh, yeah. with that, I'm going to call last call and ask each of you to kind of give us one or two, uh, maybe three takeaway messages for the audience today from our conversation. Uh, Paul, let's start with you. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess what I would just note is uh, certainly in the last 20 years, one of the things we know we've we've noticed and discovered is that particle size of forages do matter and that the Penn State particle separator can be a, a good device to uh, use to understand how those how those uh, differences in particle size can affect rumen conditions. So I think that's probably the, the biggest take home message I think about when I think about the, the carbohydrate chapter. And, and actually for the record, despite, despite the fact that Paul graduated from Penn State, um, <laughs> he, had, he has colleagues who very much agree with him who did not go to Penn State that, <laughs> that his, his statement is accurate. Yeah. And Clay, uh, I must apologize. I did not ask you what you're drinking uh, this evening, but I did notice it looked like you were enjoying another cider again. Is that the, the, the old standby? I am. It's This is a cranberry hop cider. Okay. Oh. Yeah, from Kansas. Very nice. Very nice. And, and I know exactly from whom you got that. Yeah, the same person I, I got my... enjoyed it. Yeah. So I've got a bourbon tonight that I'm enjoying as well called a Wabash Reserve. It comes from the great state of Kansas. And uh, that was given to me by a friend, uh, Stacy Mayo Martinez. And Stacy, why don't you just jump on here real quick, if you don't mind. Stacy is the brains behind the operation here. Uh, she keeps these things working. If you need to, if you want to have your own podcast, I would recommend Stacy in a heartbeat. So thank you very much for the bourbon. I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's awesome. Glad I could send a taste of Kansas out to you all. So. Yeah, thanks, Stacey. You're even wearing purple today. She is. So I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so, Clay, uh, what kind of final thoughts do you have for us? Well, I think I think a couple of things. I would echo what Paul said. I think linking this back to a tool we actually have in the field, the Penn State Particle Separator, is is great. Uh, there are a couple tables that uh, I believe are, will be in the publication that. Uh, that Paul and Mary Beth were referring to that I think will be very helpful uh, with the thought process there with with carbohydrates in the diet. And, uh, you know, and, and as, as far as the feed intake predictions, I mean, obviously, if we know dry matter intake, we work off of known dry matter intakes. But, uh, you know, occasionally we get into situations where we really don't know dry matter intake. So anytime we can improve the these prediction equations. That's certainly helpful to us in the field. Thank you, Clay. Mary Beth, I'll give you the final word. Yeah, first things first, this has been a pleasure. My final word, because Paul's already taken over the one that, that went with the Penn State particle separator, I'll speak to the methods. If you're going to try to get inputs for the new NASEM, make sure you use the methods that are listed or some variant that's allowed in the, the citations that go along with those methods is to ensure that everybody's on the same page and you're getting the numbers you need that the model would be looking for to be able to give you some answers back. Um, and quite honestly, you know, back to something Paul said earlier, if we're all using the same methods to get some descriptions of our feeds and what we're working with in research and in the field, we're in a better position to move further ahead yet. Well, thank you for that. And I want to thank all three of you for uh, uh, an enjoyable conversation this evening. It's, it's, it did not disappoint. And I also want to thank you for the, uh, the dedication and the time and effort that you guys have been, uh, that you've put into this new uh, NASM document. Uh, it's, it's much appreciated. So on behalf of uh, Balchem and the industry, I want to thank you. I also want to thank our loyal listeners for stopping by once again here at the Exchange. We hope you continue to find value and practical tips that impact your business. As a reminder, we will continue breaking down the new 2021 eighth revised edition of the nutrient requirement of animals over the coming weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the new episodes. 
If you'd prefer to pre-order a copy of the new NASM and receive a 25% discount, uh, visit balkem.com slash real science and click on the NRC series for a link and the discount code. If you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on your way out. Don't for, uh, forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. You just need to like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address, t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balcam.com. Our Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with a ruminant-focused topic on the first Tuesday of every month. We'll be changing it up a little bit in November to allow everyone to attend the Western Dairy Management Conference on November 1st through the 4th. Our next uh, ruminant webinar will take place on November 16th, where Dr. Mike Vonderhaar will discuss how to improve feed efficiency. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.